After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant and intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell, to tell no one what had, they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning with this, with this, what this might, dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And now it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Shall we pray, gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, and we trust you. In these uh, perilous times, unprecedented, when everyone has an opinion and everyone has a criticism, but nobody has certainty, we do not look to our elected leaders. We do not look to our peers. We do not look to social media. We look to the, to the heavens from where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Father, when this world around us is confusing and infuriating, foolish and prideful, we don't look to the Oval Office, we don't look to Congress, we don't look to the State House. We look to the throne room of Almighty God, where Christ Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns over heaven and earth. And we belong to Jesus. We are His. Father, we confess, though, that our hearts are confused. Our hearts dart, our eyes dart around looking for answers, looking for solutions uh, to the problems that we have. We try to hoard our resources. We try to um, gamble with um, schemes of man. But Father, we know that all who trust in you, all who wait on you, will renew their strength. Though in our own ability, in our own understanding, we will fall. But in Christ, trusting in the Lord, waiting on him, we will rise with the wings of eagles. Because we belong to Jesus. And there is no power in earth, in hell, or in heaven that can pull us from Jesus' hands. We are safe. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have promised that you will provide our needs. We thank you that you have told us to cast our cares on you. you we thank you that you are our light, our fortress, our salvation. And in you, we have, when we are trusting in you, we have nothing to fear. Father, we lift up those in our congregation who are... Um, struggling with isolation, with loneliness. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to reach out to them, but most of all, may they reach out to Christ. In the midst of their struggle, in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the darkness, Father, I pray that they would um, open up your word into the Psalms and open, read through uh, the, the goodness, because remembering the children's story te uh, tells us the Psalms help us love you better. And we need that love in our hearts that is given by heaven, 
that is found in your word. Father, we lift up those in our congregation that are physically suffering. We lift up Mike King right now. Father, as he struggled with with a kidney stone and just the uh, long time as it passes and the challenges that are there, we pray that you would touch him and give him peace. Give the doctors wisdom and compassion as they treat him. Give Teresa um, compassion and love for her husband. Be with her when he is not able to, she's not able to be at the hospital and as she cares for him at home. May the peace of Christ reign in his heart, in her heart. Father, we pray for those who are out of jobs right now. We pray for Ginger. We pray for Donna. We pray for Virgil. Lord, that you would provide for them. We thank you that this week they got an appointment with the city of Jacksonville, how you provided there. We pray for favor with man as they apply for this uh, help. And Father, we also pray that our congregation would be generous with all of those that are struggling with reduced hours, with um, reduced sales opportunities, with um, budget deficits. Lord, that you would provide for us. Father, we pray for the leaders in our country and our states as they decide when to open and how, what extent to open. You would pray that you would give them wisdom. And I pray that you would give our country peace. Our, our, our people are not at rest because they do not rest in you. And we see protests and anger and venom from both sides and political divisiveness, turning everything into political uh, bombs that we lobbed. Father, may we not be like that. Because we have Jesus and the hope of the gospel that says, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from our Father's hand. That there is no power and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No virus, no storm, no legislation, no opponent of the kingdom can separate us from this. And may we be calm and quiet in areas that we uh, should be political and socioeconomic. But may we be humbly bold, proclaiming the good news of great joy, which is for all people. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today in Mark 9 of the Transfiguration, that we would see the glory of Jesus. And may that spur us on to endure the path of suffering as we follow Jesus, that we may be in the presence of our great Lord for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated if you're standing at home. If you would open up your Bible to Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at the transfiguration in verses 2 through 13. In my life, I, one of the things I enjoy doing is going on hikes. Um, growing up in New England, going to camp in upstate New York in the Adirondack Park, one of the most uh, things that I loved to do the most was to go on hikes. And um, just recently, in this last four or five years, I think Crosby was about two years old, and uh, our family went to uh, North Carolina, and we did some research, and we decided to go to find a waterfall that was in uh, the Franklin area, Rufus Morgan water, Waterfall, and to be able to get there, we had some uh, general directions that we had, but we had really no understanding of what it took to get to this waterfall. Uh, we drove for about a half hour, uh, going in isolated parts of North Carolina, uh, going up mountainsides on the edge of a mountain with not very much room uh, beside the edge of the cliff. And we drove, and, and Denise asked me several times, are you sure this is where we're going? And I wasn't, but I had these general um, picture that I found on the internet and, and directions, and I was following those. And we got to the trailhead, and it, we weren't show, sure which direction to go. It was a big circle, so we chose left. And we started walking, and uh, Crosby, being two, uh, started to get weary and tired, and I put him on my shoulders. And we went, and the trail was not as well kept as we had hoped that we had to crawl over fallen trees, 
Uh, we had to walk along uh, paths on the edge of a cliff. And um, Denise was a bit concerned with our two-year-old. And then our six and eight or 10 and 11, how old Anna and Andrew were, that went off, scampering off in front of us. But after a time of a little anxiety, some stress, a lot of hard work, a sore back, and some tired legs, we got to, the tri- to the, our destination, which was this beautiful uh, waterfall, uh, and we took pictures and we enjoyed the cool, refreshing water of the waterfall, and we saw the glory of the waterfall, but the uh, struggle, and we knew to get there was worth it. Uh, This morning, uh, as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 9, we see that very same thing. The struggle uh, of getting to the glory. And the struggle at this point, again, it's a turning point in the book of Mark. We see several weeks ago the confession of uh, Peter in chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then he looks to the congregation and says, who do you say that I am? Jesus, or Peter, speaking for the disciples in verse 29, says, you are the Christ a confession that Peter made which was accurate, but in Peter's understanding it was not complete. And for he had only a partial understanding for what it meant to be the Messiah and to follow Jesus. Uh, uh, Peter was correct that Jesus was the Messiah. He was correct that Jesus would come and magnificently and triumphantly vanquish his enemies and establish a kingdom of peace and justice for the world. But the problem was that Peter did not understand that before the Messiah would come and triumph, He would come and suffer. Notice verse 31. It said the Son of Man in verse 31 must suffer and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. Now if you're reading through the book of Mark and as we've been working through it, you see that there is not a proper understanding for any of the players in the book of Mark except for two. The narrator, which is Mark, writing and the demons. They are the ones who know who the identity of Jesus is. But as we come further to the end of Mark, and as Jesus is teaching and working and revealing himself, um, we realize that the understanding, the mysteries of God, are not attainable by the wisdom of man, but they are attainable and only given by the revelation of of who God is, divine revelation. So when we come to the text, we realize that the um, possibility of following false gods and following false, false Christ is great if we don't have the revelation and we don't submit to who Jesus is. So, but when we come to Scripture and when we see Jesus for who he truly is, as he has revealed himself, and we understand what he has come to earth to do, we can see, and our big idea this morning is this. If I can get it to come up on the screen, i got to turn on, yes. Those who have seen the glory of Christ cannot remain the same. And really, this is an understanding that will be flushed out in the rest of the book. Those who have seen the glory of, the, of Christ cannot say, stay the same. And uh, as we look at the text this morning, we will see those who have seen the Christ savor the glory of Christ like a good meal, like a fine wine. Those who have seen the true Jesus for who he is savor the glory of Christ. But at the same time, they embrace the suffering of Christ. They embrace the suffering of Christ. Let's begin by looking at um, those who savor the glory of Christ in verses 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain. 
If I have learned anything in life and anything in ministry, it's the power of expectations. If two people are working together on a project, whether it be at work, at, at home, at church, wherever, if they don't have proper expectations, they are in essence working on two separate project, products because they're moving towards different goals, they're working off competing visions, they're expending different efforts, and they're expecting opposite and opposing outcomes. So up to this point, Jesus, uh, even uh, from this point, even until the resurrection, Jesus and the disciples don't have the same expectations concerning the kingdom of heaven. Yet that is about to change and it is about to radically change and it's going to be rather uncomfortable for the disciples and for anyone who follows Jesus. And this goes all the way through the book of Mark. They were about to see Jesus in a way they had never seen him before. They would receive a glimpse of the divine glory. And God's, Christ's glory what would be what sustains them and motivates them and inspires them and comforts them. No matter what they face, no matter the extent of pain and suffering and op opposition and ridicule, they already know that Jesus, up to this point, is not a run-of-the-mill prophet or a run-of-the-mill teacher, but they don't have a category for who Jesus really is until they get to the top of the mountain. And their understanding of Jesus would change forever. And the implications of this understanding of who Jesus really is would change. As they see and savor the glory of Christ, Jesus is affirmed before them by the glory of God, by the prophets of God, and by the voice of God. See this new picture that's affirmed first by the glory of God. And, and at the end of verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with, um, with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to the mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It is on mountains throughout Scripture that we see where God meets with his people. And Abraham met with God at Moriah. Mo Moses met with God at Sinai. Elijah met with God and God vindicated himself at Carmel. And so Jesus takes his inner circle and he begins to lead them up to this mountain. We don't know which mountain and honestly it's not important. But he brings up to, uh, up to this mountain where God will reveal the identity of who Jesus really is. And it will begin, though slowly, to give the disciples a glimpse of who Jesus is, a much greater picture of their understanding of the Messiah. And it says at the end of verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them. Jesus went through a radical change. The Greek word for transfigured is a word you probably know. Metamorphosize. It's, it comes from that, our English word comes from this Greek word. Metamorphosize. Like a tadpole is metamorphosized into a frog, and a caterpillar is metamorphosized into a butterfly. Jesus physical appearance is transformed and they see Jesus's divine nature in all of its glory. Mark doesn't even explain or attempt to explain and describe what he sees, but all he can come up with is the description of what Jesus's clothing looks like. It says his clothes were radiantly white, like no one on earth can bleach them. This transformation that Peter and James and John witnessed was the peeling back of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was still fully human, but now they see that it, Jesus is fully divine. They're beginning to, um, their, their understanding of Jesus is beginning to stretch beyond what they could possibly imagine. We don't know, or excuse me, and that, and that transformation was the glimpse of the glory of God shining through the veil of Jesus' humanity. 
But not only the glory of God was shown and through, radiated in Jesus, but prophets of God affirmed who Jesus was and, uh, and taught us about the glory of God. Notice it says in verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Not only did the shining radiance of God's glory affirm who Jesus was, but now the prophets of old, uh, Elijah and Moses, were the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament and came with Jesus and they began to discuss things with Jesus. We'd, I wish... I could be a fly on the wall for that discussing. Were they talking of theology? Were they talking about um, what heaven was like, about the glory of God, the power of God? Or were they trying to get clarification of why Jesus chose these bumbling nitwits, this misfit band of disciples with him, trying to find out what was the rationale for these guys? We'll never know this side of eternity, what they were discussing. But when we look at this and we understand, when we see Moses and Elijah, it's not the conversation with Jesus that was important. It's the very presence of Moses and Elijah, which is affirming who Jesus was. Because Moses and Elijah had eschatological significance, meaning this plan of salvation that God is working, Moses and Elijah played a significant role in this plan of salvation that God was unfolding. See, Moses was Israel's first deliverer. We know the Exodus that Moses was raised up, and it says uh, that Moses, at the end of his life, in the book of Deuteronomy, promised that the first Moses has come to lead this deliverance, but another Moses, a greater Moses, would come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is standing there in the radiant glory of God with Moses, the original, the first Moses beside him, and he is affirmed as the greater Moses, as the new Moses that has come. Then uh, on the other side, you see Elijah. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, um, who um, Malachi, the final prophet in the Old Testament, the last few verses, who Malachi promised would come before the great and mighty day of the Lord. And as Elijah stands there, it, it is a the beginning of the fulfillment of the end that is beginning to unfold, the day of the Lord. It says, behold... I will send you Elijah and the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of your father to the children and the hearts of children to their father, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. As the glory of God is radiating from Jesus, the prophets of God are affirming that this greater Moses and this greater prophet that has come uh, are, are standing there. Jesus is that long-awaited king, the root of Jesse that has come that will in inaugurate the kingdom of God that the prophet Elijah would come and be the forerunner to come. And at this moment, before we continue, at this moment, Peter and, all the, and James and John are overwhelmed. They're terrified. Notice verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Some, some interpreters said may, uh, that this may have been a question. Is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. Why? They were terrified. Peter is absolutely terrified. You have the radiant, resplendent glory of God shining from Jesus right before his eyes. And Moses and Elijah themselves are standing in front of him. And Peter's offer to build three tents wasn't stupid. Often Peter said stupid stuff. But Peter's uh, statement wasn't a stupid statement, though it was ill-advised and it was short-tempered and it was fueled by fear, not by an understanding of who God is and what he has done. 
Because if you remember this, we might think as 21st century reader, who would build tents if God came? Well, let's go back into the wilderness. This wilderness um, exodus salvation that Moses had led them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness and God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. And where did he dwell with his people? In a tent in the tabernacle, a big giant tent where the presence of the Lord lived. And if you have a a King James Version or you have the New American Standard, you can see where Peter says, let us build three tabernacles for you. And then also, not only with this historical understanding of God dwelling with his people in a tent, but you also have the annual Feast of of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that the people celebrated that reminded the people that looks back to God's provision and God dwelling with, with his people, but it also looks forward to the messianic kingdom that would come. And in the last 100, 200 years prior to Peter in the first century, you have this great um, emphasis on the messianic fulfillment in the, and they would celebrate this at the Feast of Booth. So Peter, in sheer terror, blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. Let's worship with the tents. But Peter was wrong. First, because Peter put up three tents. He was putting Jesus on par with the two prophets. They didn't need three tents for the presence of God. They needed one. Jesus, the divine glory of God. But not only that, but Jesus, uh, Peter's request was redundant because God didn't need a tent to dwell in. He already had a tent. He had already tabernacled with man, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter misses the point completely when he says this. The transfiguration to Mark is the equivalent of what John's statement in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the same thing. Mark is telling you that Jesus is God made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And the disciples are slowly starting to understand this, though it would would not be until the resurrection that the light would come on. The glory of God was being demonstrated to the disciples by the glory of God, by the prophets of God, and by the voice of God himself. Notice verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly look around them, there was no longer, they saw no longer anyone with them but Jesus only. Whenever you read through the scriptures, when uh, this morning when Tom read for us out of um, Exodus 34, you see the presence of the Lord is accompanied by the cloud. Here in, uh, Exod- or in Exodus 24, he says, Moses went up to the mountain. And what does it say? The cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. In uh, uh, the book of 1 Kings, when the, temp- the temple is built, this permanent tabernacle, if you will, and it says, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister for the cl- of the cloud. Why? What is that cloud signifying? The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The Shekinah glory consumed the temple. The divine presence appears in the, in the uh, uh, cloud around Jesus, around the disciples, and around the two prophets. And the voice of God himself declares, this is my son, listen to him. Now, if, for those of you who have been with us through the book of Mark, what does this sound like? You might think to a point, well, maybe Mark was confused because Jesus, he already heard this at Jesus' baptism. But Jesus, the voice is not speaking to Jesus. The voice is speaking now to the disciples who would eventually be commissioned to bring the good news of the Son of God throughout all to the utmost parts of the earth. So Jesus, the Father, is declaring about Jesus, this is my Son, this unique family relationship that I have with Jesus. He is my begotten Son. 
And then he says, listen to him. Jesus has authority to speak on behalf of God because he is very God of very God, very light of very God, of of very light. He is God in flesh who has tabernacled amongst his people. Listen to him, obey him, submit to him, deny yourself to follow him, suffer with him. The the transfiguration as we see this is not just an opportunity for Jesus to shine, but it's to give the disciples a glimpse of the all-surpassing, all-satisfying glory of God. A picture that would sustain the disciples through the rest of their life, through confusion, through loss, through persecution. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, The transfiguration was meant to teach the disciples that though their Lord was lowly and poor in appearance now, He was your average Middle Eastern man, He would one day appear in such royal majesty as as became the Son of God. Uh, The transfiguration was meant to teach them that their Master would come a second time. His saints, like Moses and Elijah, would appear with him. And he was meant to remind them that though reviled and persecuted now, because remember, it's about to come. We're, we're going back. Uh, we're reversing a little bit back before Easter. But he would be reviled and persecuted now because they, because they belong to Christ. They would one day be clothed with honor and be tar- partakers with their master's glory. When we see the glory of Jesus for who he really is, not the false Jesuses that we create in our mind, not the the graven images we create, not the Jesuses who give us what we really want. When we see Jesus for who he really is, for the glory of Jesus, for in his presence there is fullness of joy, you cannot go back to the status quo. For the glory of God is too pure, it is too wonderful, and it is too overwhelming. Nothing satisfies you. Spencer prayed in our offering prayer, let the nations taste and see that the Lord is good. When you see Jesus for who he truly is, his glory, his majesty, his wonder, his beauty, You can't go back to the things of the world because they cannot satisfy. They are like salt water to the soul. Uh, Andrew Peterson, I couldn't remember what song this was. Andrew Peterson, uh, a contemporary Christian singer, who I, uh, writer, singer, who I particularly enjoy, his words have great depth. And this is from his album, Resurrection Letters. And it says, um, it's a song called, I've Seen Too Much. And the words go like this, it's all I can do to get up in the morning, all I can do to stand up in the storm, when all I remember the passing form, a glimpse of the glory before it was gone. I get so tired of this ridicule, writing about the struggle of the disciples, but they've seen the glory, and now they're going through this path of struggle, of suffering, of persecution. I get so tired of the ridicule, but I cannot deny what I know to be true, because I've seen too much. What else can I do? Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go but to you? The disciples, though they were blinded by their ignorance, could not unsee the glory of Jesus that was on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. And later, Peter, uh, which was a confirmation, uh, a, a filling out of Peter's confession, Lord, you are the Christ. This radiant, resplendent glory was the, and the endorsements of the prophets. The voice of the Father would remain in the memory, in the conscience, in the appetite of the disciples forever. 
No matter the threats of the religious leaders, they knew the glory of Jesus. No matter the lack and the frustration and the confusion that the disciples faced following Jesus and spreading his word, they had seen the glory of Jesus. No matter how many beatings, how many floggings, how much persecution they had faced, they had seen the glory of Jesus. And the glory of Jesus would sustain them through the valleys through the darkness, through the opposition, when their hearts were filled with fear, with anxiety and confusion. They knew they couldn't go where else because they've seen too much. They have seen the glory, the radiance of God in Christ. Ocean Park, I ask you this morning, have you seen the glory of Jesus? The glory that does not allow you to go back to the status quo. The glory that changes your priorities, that changes your loves, that changes your desires. The glory that is seared into your imagination. The glory that cannot be quenched, though times of desperation and ridicule and difficulties and doubts come when the rain comes down and the flood comes up. You know and you have seen and you have tasted the glory of God and there's no one where else that you can go. Have you seen too much of Christ's glory to be satisfied with the trifles of this world? Have you seen too much of the glory of God that you have no choice but to listen in the midst of many voices for the voice of Jesus that sustains you? Can you, like the disciples, say in John chapter 6, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel. Ocean Park, if you have seen the glory of Jesus, it changes how you live. It changes how you work. It changes how you rest. It changes how you play, how you suffer, how you celebrate, how you, what you desire, how you think, how you invest your money, how you invest your time, how, what you read, and it, and it changes your friendships. When you see, truly see the glory of Jesus, you cannot remain the same because you've seen too much. Those... We remember those who have seen the glory of Christ cannot remain the same because they savor the glory of Christ and they embrace the suffering of Christ. Verses 9 and 10, the disciples are descending and Jesus speaks to them. He says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, the disciples really still don't know. They see this glory of God, they see the prophets, they hear the voice of the Father, but they still don't know. They are in the process, like all of us, the process of coming to know Jesus deeper and better and fuller. We come to Jesus with an understanding of of, um, Jesus' greatness and our need, but as we the farther that we follow Jesus, we see our need is greater with each day. This our sin consciousness grows. We see how much we need Jesus, and we see how great Jesus is. And the cross gets more beautiful and bolder and and more satisfying the more we follow Jesus. But even after seeing Jesus, they were limited by their ignorance. And ignorance is not a bad thing. It's just being ignorant. You don't, they didn't even know what they didn't know at this point. Their minds could not understand and their imaginations couldn't comprehend the minds of an eternal God. That's the reality. Scholars and godly men and women have devoted their whole life to knowing God and pursuing God, and that is not even a drop in the bucket. Therefore, because of this, because of their limited understanding and their ignorance, Jesus tells them and he prohibits them for telling anybody what they saw. 
But why is that? But notice, he doesn't say just don't ever tell anybody. He says, until the resurrection. Because the glory of Christ does not eradicate a false understanding of who the, what the Messiah would do. They still have a lot to learn. We're going to see later on in chapter 9, they are bargaining who, well, we've seen this glory, this great God affirmed by the prophets, spoken by the voice of God. Who's going to get the best seat around this guy? And they're realizing that they still have a lot to go. We still have a lot of chapters to go before they understand what really happened. But they didn't understand God's uh, the prohibition because they didn't even understand the fact that the Messiah would have to die. Look at verse 10. They're questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They have no category whatsoever with a suffering Messiah. They know the triumphant Messiah, the victorious Messiah, the Messiah whose kingdom is reigns with peace and righteousness and justice, but not a Messiah who is a suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people. And they were beginning to understand this as they walked down the mountain. But they still had a long way to go. And it wasn't until the resurrection happened. The resurrection was the missing piece that when they put it in and turn it, it unlocks this mysterious puzzle, this mystery of who God Jesus was and what he had come to do. But the thing is, the resurrection is impossible without Jesus dying without suffering. And the disciples didn't understand this. And they asked him to get some clarification. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah has come first? You see, the disciples ask a very leading question. They hear about this dying and being raised from the dead, and they're like, well, if Elijah has come, hasn't this started this process of triumph, of, the, of, of salvation, of resurrection? Aren't we good to go now that Elijah is here? Why in the world would we, the, the Son of Man have to die? Their ignorance made them emphasize the victory over the king to the exclusion of the suffering of the king. The prophets of the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would be a victorious king. His kingdom would come, his enemies would be vanquished, and he would establish a kingdom of peace. That is true. But at the same time, in Isaiah 53, 54, 55, we also see that the Messiah, the Son of Man, would be a suffering king. He would suffer and die to atone for the sins of his people. And when we see these, this teaching of Jesus, we must never preach an incomplete Jesus. Because when we eva- um, e- um, elevate one part of Jesus above everything else to the exclusion of everything else that, that's taught about Jesus, we do not preach a whole Jesus. We pre- preach a false Jesus. And this is where um, prosperity teachers like Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick mislead their listeners because they only emphasize the victory of Jesus to the detriment of the rest of Jesus. They're giving us a false Jesus, an idol that they are misleading people away from the true, genuine, sufficient, whole Jesus. And they are leading people away from their only hope in life and death, which is Jesus Christ alone. The triumphant king and the suffering servants. But Jesus says this path to triumph and victory to the marriage feast where we will be in the new heavens and new earth is not an um, easy one, two, three, health and wealth and prosperity, living your best life now. But this path that leads to glory is actually a path of suffering. A suffering that Jesus walked and that his servants walked, Elijah who come to declare the salvation of God, but what happened? They murdered him. Elijah, not being the Old Testament prophets, but the greater Elijah, which is John the Baptist, Herod cut his head off. The path to the glory of the Lord leads through suffering. For Jesus, for his forerunner, and for all who will follow him. Jesus embraced this detestable treatment of the world to save his people. 
Jesus' suffering did not eradicate His glory. Jesus' death does not destroy His kingdom. Jesus demonstrated to His followers that the path of glory leads through suffering. Because the world will not embrace the message of Jesus, they will oppose it. The wor- uh, following Jesus is not rainbows and unicorn. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. It is not your best life now. Your eternal life begins now and you taste the goodness of the world. But like Sinatra, the great theologian, says, the best is yet to come. Knowing Jesus now is sweet and it is good. But it pales in comparison when sin is done away with and the kingdom is known in full. And while now we walk these paths like pilgrim in Christmas, uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, we walk through the valley of humiliation. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is leading us and his people are walking with us. Ocean Park, the Christian life is a journey of ups and downs, of valleys and mountains, victories and defeats. But the thing that enables us to walk that journey, to climb over trees and under uh, overbrush and along tenuous mountain paths where it's dangerous through storms and persecution and those who would seek you harm is not our own ability, not in our own faithfulness. It is the glory of, the, of, of Jesus that motivates us, and it is the grace of God that leads us and carries us. It is the glory of Jesus that, that walks with us. It is the glory of Jesus that tells us to resist the temptation to indulge our flesh is the glory of Jesus that uh, we die to ourselves when it seems impossible. It is the glory of Jesus that endures when the world criticizes us and when mocks us and hates us. It's the glory of the risen Christ that sustains us, that strengthens us, and that soothes us along this. Ocean Park, when we walk this path of suffering, we do not walk alone. We walk with a great cloud of witnesses who has walked the same path who has, and have been received into the eternal glory of God. We walk with people like Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. We walk with people like Augustine to Calvin, Wesley to Billy Graham, Polycart to Jim Elliott. We walk with people like Bertha Crossan to Marsha McGee, from Dave Curry to Sakal Kiv, our brothers and sisters who have seen the radiant glory of Jesus and have joyfully walked this path of suffering with us and have gone ahead of us and have seen the glory of the eternal Christ and tasted in the sweetness and they they call to us keep going keep walking the glory of Jesus is beyond what we can imagine it pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus Peter writing to um, in second Peter wrote this for we did not follow cleverly devised myth when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we had received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, uh, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves have heard from this very voice born from heaven, for we are, were with him on the holy mountain. The voice of the apostles from our brothers and sisters in church history, from those of us who walk together on this journey here. They call us to faithfulness in the way of suffering, seeking the glory of Jesus. But it's not just our brothers and sisters who spurn us onto glory. It's Jesus himself who has walked the path of suffering. The song we sing... uh, we've been singing last month, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. The path of suffering is not a path of punishment. 
but it's the means by which Jesus Christ drives us to find shelter in him and to savor his glory, this foretaste of glory divine, as Fanny Crosby says, as watching and waiting, looking above. We've seen a glimpse a light beam of the glory of Christ that is revealed to us in Scripture, and there is so much more to come. And we can endure suffering and persecution and hatred and loneliness and confusion because the glory of Jesus is sweet. Because we have seen too much the beauty of the radiant glory of Jesus that motivates us that encourage us until the day we are called home to glory where there will be fullness of joy, knowing that those who have seen the glory of Christ cannot remain the same. Therefore, they savor the glory of Christ and they embrace the suffering of Christ, that we may be satisfied in him because Christ is glorified in us. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for the revelation of who you are. Father, without your grace and your mercy, without you revealing yourself to us, we would be lost in darkness and we would not know who you are and what you have done. We make idols in our hearts. We create Jesuses that we want to follow in our likeness to get us what we really want. But the joy of heaven will not be a strong body free from sin, though that will be wonderful. The glory of heaven will not be to be with our loved ones that, though, that we have lost, that have gone before us, though that will be sweet. The glory of heaven, the joy of heaven, the satisfaction of heaven is because Jesus is there, shining in the light of his glory, holy, holy, holy. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. I pray for all who are watching us now, for those who say, I don't know this Jesus. I've never seen this glory, but I want to know the glory of Jesus. That they would turn away from their allegiance to themselves, to the kingdoms of the world, this pleasure of the world, and say, I want to follow Jesus. And I trust in the promises of God that all who believe in him, trust in who he is, the very God of very God, who has come to live in perfect righteousness and lay his life down to take our punishment and give us his righteousness, who trust in Jesus all the chips in the middle. Everything we have is on Jesus. We follow him all the days of our life. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.